Sorry about that. We'll start properly now. Do you want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah and chapter 6? Isaiah chapter 6. Having a good time? It's good, isn't it? It's nice. Camping's lovely when the sun's shining. It's not when it's not. That's my rule. But it's really great. Really nice afternoon. Uh, It's been nice to get to know a few of you. And... uh, but if we're going we're gonna to look at um, a big, scary passage. And I mean, this morning was obviously a little bit big and scary as well. Some of you are sitting there as I was talking about the blood and thunder, thinking, oh, I'm glad I came. You know, this is really oppressive sort of sense of the violence of the cross. And we're going to do something that is, I guess, relatively full on as well this evening. Um, and we're going to look at what I'm going to call Isaiah's Nightmare. Um, it's a phrase, I can't remember who, but a friend of mine used it in conversation with me recently. I thought it was a really good phrase because it's usually labelled, this, this section in your Bible is usually labelled Isaiah's vision. And to me, vision in England now is sort of a, it's a kind of a, it's a business and even a church plan for the future kind of word. Our vision is, and you sort of, you do this, and then you go, there, that, that's it, yes, that's it, our vision, and we're going to have this many, uh, the, a turnover of this, or we, we, our vision is to get sunny delight into every spa in the country, or so, you know, and that to me is what a vision suggests, and whereas Isaiah, in a common English usage of that word, is not having this kind of an encounter in the passage we're going to read. Isaiah has in this passage the kind of encounter that if you were to have it in your sleep, you would wake up sweating. Your heart would be, you know, if you, you remember nightmares. Do you still, I mean, you might still have nightmares. I don't really, but I, I remember what it was like as a kid to have your heart pumping and to not be sure what was real and what wasn't and to wake up. And actually, I had uh, my first ever as an adult about a year ago. I thought that there were lots and lots of snakes in my bed. And I woke up and, uh, and I couldn't get it out of my head that they were there. And even though I was awake, I was running across the room trying to get out the door. It's never happened to me before. And it's immensely frightening. And some, pr- some of us probably have them regularly, some very rarely. But you know that sense of absolute horror that kicks in when you're in the middle of a nightmare? It's the kind of feeling that Isaiah has in the passage we're going to read. He has a vision of God. I'm not saying he was asleep. I'm not saying it wasn't real. But he has a vision of God. But it's a vision of such a type that if we were to say Isaiah saw God and leave it at that, we'd miss the horror dimension of what he encounters. He calls down, woe is me, I am lost because of this encounter. He is terrified by what he sees. And so I'm going to call it Isaiah's nightmare. And I want us to look at it together and understand why he was so overwhelmed with the vision of the holiness and otherness of God that he had that day. So we'll read Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him, above the Lord, stood the seraphim, these burning creatures. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he was flying. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. Because I am lost, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt's taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? 
And I said, here am I. Send me. First half of that passage is a nightmare. And from there, it picks up and becomes a story of redemption and grace. But I want us to spend a decent chunk of time experiencing, if you will, Isaiah's nightmare with him and understanding why what he saw was so shocking to him and why he was so overwhelmed with wonder and horror at the God he encountered that day. Because it's the same God that went to the cross. And we need to be able to hold those two pictures together. The God who died for sin and the God who is all holy and all powerful and all glorious simultaneously. Christianity is comprised of both. And so I'm just going to walk through a phrase at a time and hopefully help us see some of the things that made Isaiah's vision of God so frightening and what it is about God that makes him so holy, so other than us, so unlike us, as we go through this text together. And he starts with this odd phrase, is it in the year that King Isaiah died? And that might not sound odd to you because you might... For instance, say, oh, I remember the day Princess Diana died. You, sometimes we do date people's, you know, date dates by when people died. But in the Bible, they never do that. In the Bible, as far as I'm aware, this is the only place that happens. Because what always happens in the Bible is to say, in the such and such year of the reign of King so-and-so, this happened. In the 39th year of the reign of King Asa, uh, then Jehoshaphat came and did this. That's the way it normally talks. In this verse alone, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And King Uzziah is not a particularly special king in lots of ways. He had been king a long time. He'd been king for 52 years. But you might expect him to say, 52nd year of King Uzziah, this happened. That's how they normally date things. And yet here, there's a contrast Isaiah makes between Uzziah, the dead king, and the living God that he saw seated on a throne. So he wants us to see that. And he says, in the year King Uzziah died... The most powerful man in Israel, just lying in the ground, I saw the Lord, who was still alive, very alive and well. As I remember from my nightmare that I had, I encountered the living God and became aware that although kings of the earth fall into the ground and die, God doesn't. And I encountered him. I saw the Lord. And there's a contrast here. And he's saying, look, Isaiah dies. And other people died. Moses died. And Abraham died. And Julius Caesar died. And Paul died. And Genghis Khan died. And Henry VIII died. And Barack Obama will die. And God lives. And that's the contrast, isn't it? Saying, I want you to see that in the year King Uzziah was dying and dead and he went down, the most powerful man in our nation, the king, God was still there. He was sovereign over it all. He just, well, I've been here. I've seen quite a few people die. Actually, I've seen quite a few people be born. It's one of scripture's most common terms for God is the living God. Isn't it? Just the, do you worship the living God? The Jews would ask. Or the dead ones? Or the ones who'd never been alive in the first place? That's what Elijah does. You know, Mount Carmel. I love the story. He just builds an altar and says, you guys are arguing about who's God. I wish you'd stop faffing around. For goodness sake, serve Baal or serve Yahweh, but don't try and serve both. And they went, mm -hmm. and he said, all right, well, let's do an experiment. And they went, yes, experiments about God. Let's get together with that. Let's experiment and see who the true God is. He said, well, we'll build an altar over here and an altar over there. And the God that sends fire is the living God. And the God that doesn't send fire is the dead God. And they went, what you say is good. And so he just, you know, waits and they all go along and they start praying and nothing happens. Yeah, maybe he's gone to the loo, shout a bit louder, he might be on holiday, come on, shout a bit louder. All right, boy. And he's just kind of looking at his watch, if, if he'd even had those things, probably not. And waited around and just, no watches back then, waited around and just said, okay, man, it was sun, you know, noon, and then into the late afternoon and they're dancing around, slashing themselves as is their practice and, you know, worshipping demons and calling out to this God who's just not doing anything. And then Elijah steps forward as, towards the end of the day and he says, all right, fair enough. Let's get some water, pour it over the altar. 
Let's get another lot. Let's pour it over the altar. Let's get another lot. Pour it over the altar. Now, can you see this altar is running with water so that the trench is filled with it? Now, God, you live between the cherubim. Please, would you now show your servant and this nation that there is a living God in Israel. And before he's finished speaking, fires come down from heaven. It's burnt up the sacrifice, the wood, and even the stones. And every person around there just falls on their knees and says, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. He's the living God. And Isaiah's point, as he talks a lot in his book, is, you read through the whole book of Isaiah, it's a great thing to do if you can keep with him the whole way through. There's bits that are confusing, but he keeps coming back to this theme, that the other gods of the nations are nothing, but the living God is real. And he's saying, Uzziah died, God lives. Do you, can you see the contrast? Since, since I started speaking a few minutes ago, 600 people worldwide have died. By 2100, 10 billion new people who are not alive now will be alive. And the 6 billion of us who live here now, or nearly 7 now, will have vanished like Isaiah. If we were to have this meeting in 100 years' time, none of us will be here. We'll all be dead. God lives. There's this contrast of the livingness of God, the non-contingency of God, the fact that you and I depend on God for light and clothing and breath and everything that makes us live, food, water, even the things that we've had today. God lives and needs nothing from anybody and he remains completely sufficient in himself. God lives in the year the king of Zion died. He moves on. He says, I saw in that year, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. I love that. God sits down. God in heaven is sitting and i know some of you can't see me now you just have to trust i'm still here god's sitting it's funny preachers don't do that do they they don't they oh you can see me thank you so preachers don't do that because we're active we're rushing around we're trying to persuade you of things and communicate things you don't spend very much of your life sitting down when you go home, when you go back to your tents, you won't spend much time sitting down. You'll be making sure that there's no water crept into the tent. You'll be cooking. You'll be making yourself a hot chocolate or a cocoa. And then you maybe go to sleep and rest because you need to recharge. And then you'll get up tomorrow and you have to make breakfast. And then you have to do the washing up. And then you will spend your most of your lives active, rushing around. And your to-do list, if I might say it this way, is not as long as God's. The things you've got to get done in a day, things I've got to get done in a day, are pretty small compared with what God has to achieve in a day. God's to-do list includes answering the prayers of every Korean Christian, which I think would, would take me quite a while if actually I had to handle that problem. It involves sustaining the stars and keeping them all in orbit. It involves holding together all things in himself. It involves upholding the universe by the word of his power. And when Isaiah looks into heaven and sees what God's doing, he's sitting down. He's not very hassled, he's not rushed, he's not struggling, he's not rushing, tearing his hair out. Where did I put the car keys? He's not got any of those issues. He's not saying, oh, the so-and-sos have just woken up, I've got to answer their prayers, and now flipping Jupiter's gone out of orbit, come back. He's not thinking that way. You see God with responsibility for, he knows every single sparrow that falls from the ground, not one of them falls, Jesus says, without the knowledge of your father. And he's sitting there. He's fine. God isn't stressed. God isn't bothered. God isn't exhausted at the end of a day. He who is the most high of Israel doesn't slumber or sleep. He's sitting on a throne, in fact, ruling. Got the whole galaxies before him, and he's just sitting there. John Piper says, no vision of heaven has ever, what's the phrase he uses, no vision of heaven has ever caught a glimpse of God plowing a field or cutting the grass or shining shoes or filling out reports or loading a truck. Heaven is not coming apart at the seams. God is never at his wit's end with his heavenly realm. He sits, he sits on a throne, all is at peace, and he has control. 
I love that line. Heaven isn't coming apart at the seams. It's good just to reflect for a moment on the beauty and otherness of God. This is some of the things that made Isaiah's encounter with God so scary. He realized the one who sustains the universe is sitting down. And that frightened him. And it should frighten us too. The sovereignty of the God we serve. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up is the next phrase. And that's a beautiful double whammy because it operates at two levels. At one level, it just means that God is high and we are not. So God's throne is in the heavens and ours isn't. When he appears to people, he often appears on the summits of mountains. And one of the ways that that communicates otherness to us is it says, look, if you were to be picked up and plonk where God is, you would die quite quickly. If you and I were put on the top of Mount Everest right now, we would die within minutes. There's a, there's a deliberate intention. God says, I appear where I'm high so that you can see it takes a long, long time to get anywhere near where I am. I want you to get that distance between you and me. So at one level, this is just a picture of sovereignty and greatness. It's saying you are, God is high, we are not. So he appears at mountains. He's high and lifted up. So when man is building a tower and they say, we will build a tower with its top in the heavens... It says, the one who is actually in the heavens, it says, this beautiful phrase in Genesis 11, says, and Yahweh came down to see the tower which the children of men had built. <laughs> Don't you love that? He said, we built a, he said, you built a tower. Its top is supposed to be in the heavens. It's interesting though, because I live in the heavens, and I can't see anything, so I'm going to have to come down and have a look. And Oh, guys, congratulations. Way to go on the tower. It's a smug and a rather lame attempt by human beings to rival God. And something of the way the writer's written the story is as if to just parody man's attempts to try and be greater than we are. When the rulers of the earth plot to overthrow God in Psalm 2, the psalmist just says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. Just laughs. Just, that is a little bit laugh. <laughs> Angels, check it out. They don't think God's great. Well, he is. If you follow the phrase through the scriptures, though, what you'll see is that high and lifted up doesn't just mean huge and up there. It comes to have a second meaning, the second half of this double whammy, which is that there's a twist to the phrase. Because later on in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah begins to unpack and explore more of this phrase, high and lifted up. He uses the same phrase three times. He uses it in this part of the book to describe the God who is up and seated and magnificent. But he then later in Isaiah chapter 52 and 3 begins to describe the Messiah, the suffering servant, as one who will act wisely. He will be high and lifted up. And then goes on to describe the cross in, again, astonishing detail and accuracy. And so all of that that we saw this morning about the substitutionary death of the Savior happened in fulfillment of a biblical promise that said, my servant will be high and lifted up. And he'll look like this when he does. And so that phrase high and lifted up both means God is mighty and exalted. And it also means he is going to be strung up for the rescue of all, all people. And then in John 12, John, the Apostle John, quotes from both of these passages, Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53, and he brings them together, saying both of these refer to Jesus. He said, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke of him. So Isaiah, in this day, is seeing Jesus seated, high and lifted up. God is high and lifted up in majesty and in power and in sacrificial death. That's the sovereignty of God. And it really scared Isaiah. Then it says, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, I find it interesting that the, that the appearance of the Lord is never actually described in this text. It doesn't say at all what God looked like. 
He says, I, I saw the Lord, but he kind of didn't really. He saw lots of things near the Lord. You almost get the impression there's this bright white light in the middle, and he can't look at God, but he can see his throne, and he can see those around him. He can see the creatures around him. He can see the temple, and he can see the road, but he just can't see the Lord. That's my way of looking at what Isaiah is saying. But what a resplendent and beautiful God. What a bright, radiant, shining God that his robe fills the temple with infinite majesty. Now, many of you have heard this said before, I'm sure. But for those who haven't, and it's even good to just revisit it, just imagine, imagine the royal wedding this, you know, a couple of months ago, and, and Kate Middleton comes in, and the train of her robe keeps coming as she's 15 or 20 yards down the aisle. Not, not that none of this sort of you know, wussy gowns that go from here back to the wall now, but that go from maybe here back to that wall, or even here to that wall over there. People would begin to think that's a bit excessive. You're going to be the next queen. Oh, yeah, bully for you, but that's a stupid dress. We would, we would and I, I think. And we would become more and more offended with her self-importance as she kept walking to the other end of the tent and found more and more of her dress coming in. And imagine if Westminster Abbey that day had eventually had to have ushers dressed in their very stuffy top coats coming around saying, excuse me, I'm terribly sorry, but Prime Minister, would you mind moving to the side because there's still no room for the dress. The, the train of her robe is filling the Abbey. You can imagine she would, they, would, they would talk like that and David Cameron would be like, oh, I'm terribly sorry, and move to the side. He knows he's on TV, so he's got to, got to obey. And they keep coming and eventually Westminster Abbey is evacuated. The only person in there left is Kate Middleton and the entire building is filled with a dress. That's what Isaiah is saying. The train of the robe filled the temple. Only difference is the temple in Jerusalem was bigger than Westminster Abbey. But that aside, you've got the picture. The train of the robe filled the temple. It's a resplendence. What would it say about Kate Middleton were she to wear a dress quite that extravagant? It would speak of resplendence and magnificence and importance that meant that people like the Queen and the Prime Minister and others had to leave the room to make room for the dress. That's what Isaiah is telling us about God. Do you see how resplendent he is that his train fills the temple? Behold the sovereignty of God. Above him, Isaiah goes on, verse 2, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now these creatures are extraordinary. They really are quite something. They never appear anywhere else in the Bible, at least not with this name. And the word seraphim probably comes from the word sarap, which means to burn. That's probably what it means. These burning ones may be to do with the coal from the altar that we see in a moment. But the voice of one of these creatures going, holy is enough to shake the temple. Now, as Andy mentioned, uh, you mentioned earlier about me and Rich and Andy going, spending some time in Israel a few months ago and actually seeing how big the temple was and seeing that the thresholds of the temple, there was one stone that, tell me if I'm exaggerating, guys, but it was certainly wider than the stage and kind of above head height, wasn't it? It was absolutely in, in one, one of the foundation stones. These stones, they were taken out of a you know, a kind of a massive quarry nearby. And then Joe was brought in and, you know, se several metres long and metres high and thick. I mean, these are phenomenal chunky stones. And the voice of one of these angels is going, holy, shakes them. And it shakes the whole temple, is quivering with the voice of one of these guys as they shout to another. Creatures whose voice alone shake a temple deserve respect, I think. I mean, we might be able to get an, a glass to smash if we really ramped up the PA and got a lady to sing very high, and maybe, I don't know, we might be able to get a glass to smash. We're not going to shake a temple. These creatures say, morning, and the whole place shakes. 
They say holy, and the temple quivers and is filled with smoke. Later on in this book, Isaiah, we find one angel, just one, goes out one night in response to the prayer of King Hezekiah. In fact, in response to that bit of scripture that we were singing to, you know, you, you do not faint, you don't grow weary, you're the everlasting God, the maker of the ends of the earth. In response to the prayers of the people of God around that time of history, one angel goes out and 185,000 Assyrians are killed overnight, which is over twice as many people as were killed in one day at Hiroshima. So it's the most number of people who've ever been killed in one day's fighting in human history. And it was one angel, and he struck them all down to deliver God's people. Angels who can do that are worth fearing, I think. They're scary. If I encountered a seraphim, or a seraph, I'm going to run and hide. Immediately. I am very frightened of these creatures. But these creatures who are so scary to us aren't at all worried about the fact that you're there. They're not worried about the fact that Isaiah's there at all. They're not going, I can't believe he would din to look at me. I shall strike him down. The seraphim are worried that they might themselves see the one who is on the throne. So they have a pair of wings for the express purpose of covering their eyes so they can't even see him. How holy do you have to be, do you think, to cause a creature who's never sinned, the voice of whom can shake the temple and who can kill nearly 200,000 people in one night, have to have a pair of wings permanently on full-time duty covering their eyes so they can't even see you? What kind of holiness does that connote about the God that we come into the presence of and sing to that he has rescued us and loved us? It's overwhelming to me. These, these creatures, they cover their feet in shame. They've never sinned. We've got no reason to think that any seraphim have ever sinned. But they cover their feet as if to say, I don't want to be exposed in the presence of the God who's seated on that throne. The sovereignty of God is overwhelming, and that's why Isaiah had a bit of a nightmare. And what they're saying to each other, then verse, go on in verse 3, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I don't know how you would describe the essential nature of God. Somebody said, how do you sum up God? And you say, well, he's God of love and he's God of grace. And God. The angels, not to say those things are wrong or less than valid, but the angels, we kind of know because they do ha- we have two separate heaven scenes we get into in the Bible. One here and one 800 years later on in Revelation chapter 4. And they're still singing the same song. So if you've ever been in one of those worship times, you're just thinking, I wish they'd learn another song. Does it, the angels know how you feel. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The heaven and earth are filled with his glory. It's the essential nature of God. The holiness of God. The, the otherness of God. The fact that everything about us is in a different category to the holiness of God. So you can, you can describe God in certain ways and try and make connections between God's world and your world, but you just can't. If you try and describe God as being like this, only bigger, or like this, only better, it just doesn't work. It breaks down. Because God is holy. God is other. We are, it's the holy and the common in the Old Testament. You have things which are set apart and totally unique, and then you have everything else. In the universe, there is one who is holy, set apart, completely unique, and then there's everything else that he's made. If you were, if you were the kind of person who would reach out and want to lay hold of the box in which God lived, you'd be killed, and several were. If you tried to offer fire in a way that God didn't particularly want you to, and he'd specified not to, you would be killed. Fire would come out from the box and kill you. One guy even just reached out his hand to stop an ox stumbling because it was carrying the box, and he was instantly killed. Because it's holy. And you can't touch holiness. You can't grab hold of the otherness of God. It's just not open to us. 
It's only when God says, I will now come down to you. I will now become like you are, that we're able to go towards Jesus and find that he says, hey, touch me. Put your hand in here, in here. Touch me, stop your doubting and believe. But until God's made that move, we're stuck with a box that will kill us if we touch it and a living God who is too holy to look at. And Isaiah saw that God. Isaiah remembers seeing this before he's aware of anything about the gospel and the way God will make himself accessible to us. He's just terrified by the notion of serving a holy God. And they also, they're saying, holy, holy, holy. Again, and you've probably heard it said before, but in in Hebrew, if you want to, if you want to say holier or holiest, you say holy, holy. You, You pair words to try and imply superlatives. So we might say someone's good and then we might say they're very good. Well, in Hebrew, you just say they're good, good. But you never ever say they're good, good, good. That grammatically doesn't make any sense. In this case, they do. It's the only place in the Hebrew Bible they do that. Holy, holy, holy. Holiest of the holy of holy. Because it doesn't grammatically make sense. What Isaiah is seeing, he's hearing them shouting, holy, 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 raising it to the power of three. And he's getting people to, st- wants us and he wants himself just to stand before and listen to these angels' songs. Saying, wow, this God is indescribably other than I am. And then they sing, the whole earth is full of his glory. So I want to illustrate that with a few, I just thought you might like some pictures. You know, there's a lot of words coming from me. I thought you might like some pictures as well. So I'm just going to talk about a few things that God has made that are filled with his glory. And I'm going to ask you to do a a couple of silly things. And and the first one is this. I wonder if you could take your shoe off. Okay, so if you want to take your shoe off for a moment. And I'm not going to ask you to admire either your or anybody else's feet at this stage. It's simply for the purpose of seeing how large a shoe is. So could you hold your shoe in your hands? I want to just talk about a little bit some of the ways in which the earth is filled with the glory of God. Okay, so you're holding your shoe right now. If you have it, some of you got wellies, that's excellent. So some of you, look at the shoe. Now, the size of the average person's foot, say you are rough, I don't know, what's the average person's foot? A size seven or eight, averaging out men and women? So you've got, say, a size seven foot on average. Now, in the top inch of forest soil, when you go for a walk, there are, on average, 340 different animals under the area covered by your footprint. Okay? So every time you put your foot down in a, in a forest, you go for a walk in a place like that, of which there's plenty around here. You can't do this talk in London, because no one knows what forests are. But around here, everybody, we all know what they are. And you go for a walk. Every time you put your foot down in the top inch alone of the soil, there are 340 different creatures. And you don't know anything about any of them. Some of you know a bit about them because you work outdoors. Most of you have no idea they're there. And I certainly don't know what they are. 340. That means that if you go for a one-mile walk in the forest, you will tread on approximately 600,000 creatures, none of which you know anything about. Does that blow your mind? When he says the earth is filled with his glory, it's not just saying, oh, God is so glorious that everywhere you look, there's a little bit of glory. What he's saying is, everywhere you look in heaven and earth, you will see witness to the glory of God. You'll see it in the heavens, you'll see it in the earth. So I'm going to start with small things, and then we might, if we have time, go on to a few big things as well. Small creatures tell me something about the providential... You can put your shoes back on. Small creatures tell me something about the providential care of Almighty God. They tell me that as that, quote, that text I quoted already. Matthew ten twenty nine. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, but not one of them falls to the ground without your father? Are not 340 bugs under your footprint and you don't even know they're there, yet not one of them is born and dies without the knowledge of your father? Tells you something of the glory of God, doesn't it? Tells you something about the providence of God, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, that he's able to map the lifespans from 
birth to death of every single one of these creatures and never once feel out of control in any way and totally aware of every single creature under his care. Tiny creatures, though, are actually very large comparison to other stuff we know. Um, so if we were now to burrow deeper into God's creation, we find things that make mites in the soil look absolutely gigantic. So... Take cells, okay? This, picture, this is a human eye in a slightly grim way. It looks like you're about to eat it in some horrible way, and we're not. But a human eye has over 100 million different cells. I think 107 million different cells, and most of them are deeply specialized, which is another whole story that is beautiful to think about as we consider what God's done. So 100 million cells in your eye. You think, oh, that's quite impressive. Bacterial cells are a fair bit smaller than that, because bacterial cells, every time you wash your hands, you scrub, on average, five million of them off your hand and into the sink, and you can't even see them. So you do, you go to the loo, you go to the sink, five million little things, living things, disappear down the sink, you're not even aware of it. God sustains each one of those bacterial cells, which is a little spooky, because they look a bit gross. But God sustains them all by the word of his power. By him, Colossians says, all things were created, whether visible or invisible. I'm slightly abusing that text because I think he's probably talking about principalities and powers. But let's just say for the moment, invisible things, tiny, tiny things you can't even see. By him, all things were created. It doesn't stop there. Cells themselves are made up of smaller entities, which we've only started to understand quite recently. So this is a, a shot of the intestinal bacterium, which is small for a cell. It's about 0.0001 centimetres wide. So it's little, I think we'd agree. It's even smaller than some of us. And inside it, it has 20,000 ribosomes, which are those, as you can see, ribosomes, bottom centre, you can see a little arrow pointed to what they are. Ribosomes are basically miniature chemical factories that make protein molecules for the cell to use. There's 20,000 of them inside a bacterium, and the bacterial cell is about 0.0001 centimetres wide. So there's some quite small stuff God's made, and every single one of those ribosomes, God understands, knows, has manufactured, and created and sustained. Molecules are then the next step down below that. So a molecule is so small you have to use quite ridiculous analogies to explain it, but let's have a shot of a molecule. This is, say, a, that's a picture of a, a water molecule. Um, so there's big red oxygen and then two little grey hydrogens. But a water molecule is so small that it's really hard to understand. So... I, I, this is my, the picture I like using, that a water molecule relative to the size of an orange is the same as a pea relative to the size of the earth. So I want you to imagine that you got on a plane and you flew across the Atlantic Ocean and out the window all you could see was peas. The entire journey. And then you got on another connecting flight and you flew to LA and all you could see was peas. And then, as I did once, you had the flight of death and you then fly to the middle of the Pacific and then New Zealand and still the Pacific Ocean is just carpeted in peas. Nothing else. And then you bear in mind that that's only the top little bit of the Earth's crust, all the way around. And then in between the Earth's crust and the centre, there's another massive, many, many millions of times more peas. That's how many water molecules are in an orange. Just, you know, few, you, some people ate oranges for dinner. And there you go, you didn't think about it, did you? Now you're going to be worrying about thinking, oh, it's covered in peas. <laughs> there's a lot of... A lot of water molecules in an orange. God knows about every single one of them. In him, all things are held together. And then beneath them, molecules are composed of atoms, which are even more indescribably small. And then beneath them, we then discovered about 100 years ago, having thought that was the smallest thing there was, that a whole bunch of other stuff is in there. Um, it wasn't just molecules, atoms. It's then protons, neutrons, and electrons, as per this, this drawing. 
And then in there, there's other stuff that, to be honest, nobody's ever seen, but kind of guess must be in there, things like leptons and quarks. And as a frame of reference, then a hydrogen atom weighs about 2,000 times more than a lepton. So there's some very little things in creation, and God sustains them all. And so when the, when the, the, the angels shout, the earth is filled with his glory, I don't know if they know about leptons or quarks, I doubt it. But I think they do know that there's a world that's so richly filled with the glory of God that every atom and molecule let far less, you know, far more bacterial cell or eye cell or human eye or brain or whatever else, they're filled with the glory of God. And Isaiah's encountering angels who are just singing about it. Wow, have you seen how glorious the earth is? Yes, incredible. Have you noticed this? Wow, the earth is actually full of his glory. But it's not just small things, it's big things. Should we do some big things? Yeah, I like big things. God has also made some very big things, and they speak of his glory as well. The big thing with which we're probably most familiar is the earth. Dun, dun, dun. Isn't that, that's just a great picture, isn't it? I don't know what we did with talks like these before satellite pictures, but the, the earth is big. I'm going to go out there on a limb and say that. The earth weighs six and a half million, billion, billion tons. It's very big. Billion tons doesn't help people. They don't, we don't understand what it is. So this might help. This is a bit like the oranges and peas. The earth is so big that relative to its size, even with the Himalayas and the ocean trenches, it is smoother than a billiard ball. So if you were to blow a billiard ball up to the size of the earth, the divots on its surface would be larger relative to the billiard ball than the mountains are relative to the earth. It's pretty something, isn't it? God said, the earth's quite large. Yeah, the highest mountain, 8,000 meters up. And he's just saying, you couldn't even see that on the surface of the earth. It's smoother than a billiard ball relative to its size. But the Earth isn't an unusually large planet, because of the nine planets in our solar system that there used to be until Pluto got fired, for reasons I haven't fully understood, it, the Earth was just the middling-sized one in the nine. So it was bigger than Venus, Mars, Mercury, Pluto, but it was smaller than various other planets, including, for instance, Jupiter. So Jupiter is the big one in the next picture. And Jupiter and Saturn are a lot bigger than the others, but the Earth, as you can see, is a lot smaller than Neptune and Uranus, and certainly a lot smaller than Saturn and Jupiter. So Jupiter's northern lights are bigger than our entire planet. When Jupiter has the, the, the Aurora Borealis equivalent, I don't know what, they, the, the Jupiterus Borealis, I'm not sure, they, they have the big light festival that goes on at night because of the sun's flashing in the atmosphere. Well, that's bigger than the whole of the Earth. The great red spot, which you can see kind of bottom left-ish, is bigger than the Earth. In fact, it's a lot, by the looks of things, it's a lot bigger than the Earth. But Jupiter, of course, is, is big for a planet, but it's not big compared to other stuff. Jupiter is very, very small compared to the Sun. So in this picture, Earth is about the size of a full stop, and Pluto is about one pixel in size. Jupiter's now looking extremely rubbish, and it's like a marble sitting next to a beach ball of something of that. So the Sun is 987 times bigger than Jupiter. And the sun could fit 330,000 Earths inside it. The sun contains 99.8% of the mass of the whole solar system. Every second, 4 million tons worth of the sun's mass is converted into energy and burned. Every second. Which is about the weight of a million African bull elephants. Every second. Right? Here we go. We're just a million elephants just flying off the sun. Like this. <laughs> the image has got you, hasn't it? You just think, <laughs> elephants? It's still going. Every second. A million African bull elephants worth of mass flying off the sun and being converted into energy. God sustains everything. God made everything. Lift up your eyes on high, he says in Isaiah 40, again in that chapter we sung from earlier. Lift up your eye on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number? Come on out, son. 
Who knows all of the stars by name? By the greatness of his might, and because he's strong in power, not one of them's missing. Come on then, sun. Okay, other stars, let's come out. Come out. Yep, okay, I'm fine. A million elephants. Yeah, I know, I know. But I'm, I'm, because I am strong in power, not one of you is missing. Not one lepton or quark or atom within you is missing because of the glory of God. The heavens and earth are filled with his glory. But of course, the sun isn't actually a very big star. Okay, so compared to Arcturus, it's tiny. So now the sun looks like a marble. Jupiter is one pixel in size and earth is invisible at this scale. So the sun relative to Arcturus. So the earth is invisible at this scale. You and me and our ambitions and our achievements and our Bible weeks or our Plumpton camp weekends or no camp weekends is an awful phrase. Let's not call it that. But, you know, that's going to stick, isn't it? I'm really sorry. That wasn't that wasn't intentional. But anyway, our uh, the things we do, our lives, the sum totals of our achievements, the, the families we raise and, the, and the, you know, the songs we might sing and write and the books we write and the people we the lives we touch, all of that is invisible at this scale. When you look from out here, the Apollo program and the internet and penicillin and electricity, they're not as impressive as they might seem to us up close. When you look from out here, the things that we call glorious are not as glorious as we thought they were. So... Just, just, can you just want to leave it up, actually? So John Lennon said, we're bigger than Jesus now. I think, I must admit, from standing here and looking at Arcturus, it, it doesn't look that way, John. Now, I know it's a cheap shot, right? He's died as well, but, but you... <laughs> that wasn't intentional either. I'm having a bad few minutes here. Anyway, but when you, what I mean is when you look at Arcturus, you, you don't get the sense that the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. When you look at Arcturus and... Noel Gallagher, in his slightly stroppy Mancunian way, says, when, we, you know, when did God last play Nebworth? You think, is that, is that a real question? <laughs> when Christopher Hitchens writes a book saying, God is not great, you can't even see them out here. When you stand and look somewhere near Arcturus, wherever it is, the Great Wall of China isn't that great after all. I love the line that people always say, the Great Wall of China is visible from space. You say, yep. It isn't visible from most of space. It's actually only visible from the very specific part of space directly above the Great Wall of China. And in the rest of space, people aren't out near Arcturus going, oh, have you seen the Great Wall of China? It's not that great. And meanwhile, Arcturus is up there doing just fine. It's proclaiming the glory of the only one who was really glorious and saying with Job, is not God high in the heavens? Look at the highest stars. See how lofty they are. And Job didn't know any of these factoids, he just said it anyway. Because he knew that the stars meant that the God who created them was filled with glory. And that's not the end of it, because Arcturus itself isn't actually that big. Arcturus is now the marble-sized one, the sun is one pixel, Jupiter's invisible at this scale, and Antares is actually, I will concede, quite large. Antares is a thousand light years away. It's the 15th brightest star in the night sky, so if you get a really clear night and you go out and you rank them 1 to 15, Arcturus is your 15th. It's a thousand light years away, which means that the light that left Antares that we're going to see, if we do see it tonight, left Antares when William the Conqueror hadn't yet invaded England. And there are around 100 billion stars in our galaxy, and scientists think there are somewhere around 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe, and that number's going up all the time. And Genesis 1.16, as many of us have heard before, says, he also made the stars. And that's the kind of God that Isaiah encountered that day. And that's the kind of God that he heard them singing to each other and saying, the earth is filled with his glory. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows the work of his hand. Day after day they pour out speech. There's no voice, there's no mountain where the voice is not heard. We stand in awe of the glory of God with Isaiah when we look at some of those things. And now verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Quaking and smoke often accompany the appearances of God in the Old Testament. And if you notice that, you see it in Exodus, Mount Sinai. You see it in the book of Ezekiel. You see it at Calvary, as we read even earlier today. But why? Why do you get smoking and shaking? Why shaking so much when God's presence arrives? And I think it's something to do with... I I, I speculate, but I think it's something to do with the fact that the Hebrew idea of glory is connected with their word for being weighty or heavy. The word kabod for which they mean glorious, that means weighty as well. So there's this sense that something which is glory, glorious, is heavy and it weighs on you in a sense that it means you can't really kind of stand up and just carry on bouncing around as if it's lightweight. You actually have to bear up under the weight of a a weight of glory. That's what C.S. Lewis called his famous sermon. And so what happens is when God has, there's a theophany or an appearance of God in the Bible, that something that's happening is that the weight of glory is colliding with the lightweight of earth and of humanity. And when that happens, you get a, a, a quake, you get an earthquake often, you get mountains shaking, temples shaking. So I need a chunky friend of mine to be able to come. Chris, would you mind being able to hold? I say, I mean chunky in a positive way. To me, that's a big, strong man kind of thing. I'm a big girl's blouse, as you can tell. I don't have the muscles. But Chris is strong enough to be able to hold up that big thing of water. So, Chris, would you mind standing on the stage a moment? And um, so. What happens when you, when you get lightweight things that collide with heavier things, it makes no difference, right? What happens is the heavier thing, the more kabod thing, the, to use the Hebrew word, the more glorious thing, outlasts the, the light thing. So if you put something that's very light into something that's really quite heavy, it makes absolutely no difference at all. So you collide a leaf into a pool of water and the leaf remains floating on the surface. It makes no impact at all. It doesn't cause a problem. It's, it's lighter than the water, so it doesn't displace anything. <laughs> but if you take a brick, if you take a brick, what the reason that happens is because the brick is more weighty, it's more glorious, in a, if we're using slightly silly language for a minute, but bear with me, it's more glorious, more weighty than the water that it's go- going into, and therefore the brick displaces the water. And what happens is the water is forced to realign itself around the new reality that the brick is there, and that's why you get a water quake. Right? That's why, or if you were to drop a block of gold into an ice, you know, a, a sort of an icy lake, you would find an ice quake. Because what happens is the heavier, more substantial, weighty thing collides with the lightweight, ephemeral thing, and it displaces it. And then the water is forced to reorganize itself around the reality of the brick. The water doesn't say, I just, I'm quite comfortable where I am, thank you. The water just has to say, I'm going to go everywhere. <laughs> it doesn't have a choice because the brick is so heavy and substantial, it forces a complete realignment of all the water molecules. Thank you very much, Chris. That's very helpful. Now, don't lose the point. Don't lose the point. The point is this. When God collides with our world, he causes earthquakes. And actually, when God collides with our lives, he causes self-quakes. That's a good Tim Keller phrase. He says, God causes self-quakes because the weighty glory of God collides with the flighty, ephemeral, light, flippant things of our world. And as he does so, all of our furniture has to get rearranged around him. Just as the brick forces all the water to realign itself and some just gets chucked out, when God enters our lives, bits of our lives go flying. We collide and we meet the living God and suddenly he's the central thing in the room and everything else has to be rebuilt around him. All the furniture changes. 
some things just disappear from our lives, never to come back. And if that hasn't happened to you, the chances are you haven't met the living God. If that realignment, that collision, that self-quake hasn't taken place, you probably haven't met the real one. You've probably met one of the dead ones and just confused him with the real one. Because when something that's glorious collides with something that's not, that which is not has to reconfigure itself in order to make room for the weight of glory. And Isaiah encountered that. And look at what it did to him. It said, I said, woe is me. Isaiah saying, woe is me, is like what happens to the water as the brick hits it. It says, woe to me, some of this life is going to have to get lost and the rest of it is going to have to be completely reshuffled in order to make room for the weight of glory. Woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among, even if I wasn't, I still live among people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. What hope is there for me? He suddenly realized the holiness of God. He saw the weight of glory. And it wasn't the first time he discovered there was a God. He'd been a believer already for what we can gather. But it was the first time he realized quite how holy and glorious the real God was. And it broke him. When we see that the God of the universe is the one we worship, it changes us. If the God we worship made the stars, then he's terrifying. And Isaiah was ruined. This is where his nightmare comes to a peak. Woe is me. I'm lost. But that's not the end of the story, thankfully. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt's taken away, and your sin is atoned for. You see, Isaiah's stuck. He's got nothing to offer. He's ruined. He's water flying everywhere in his life. He's got nothing to anchor himself, and he's just met God. He is waking up in the night, if you like, sweating and terrified. And God takes the initiative. Isaiah's panicking. He doesn't say, do you know what would really help me out here? Substitutionary atonement. He doesn't know that word. He doesn't know what it is. He's got no frame of reference for any redemption for someone sinful in the presence of a God that holy. And yet, God takes the initiative. And it's such a beautiful statement of atonement in these verses. It's difficult to do it justice. But just look, God takes the initiative, which is what we call grace. Because the seraphim comes to him. He doesn't call for anything. He just says, whoa. And the seraphim seraphim come to him. So that's grace, the initiative of God. There's a burning or live coal, which comes from the fire. And that's taken from the altar. And the altar, of course, represents sacrifices where you'd kill kill animals in order to offer up sacrifice to God. So there's a moment of grace, a moment of fire, a moment of sacrifice. And as a result, as Isaiah's lip is touched, and you think that must hurt, a live coal on your lip. But as his lip is touched with the coal from the sacrifice altar, the angel says, your sins are time for. Your guilt's taken away. That's expiation, the theological word for the removal of guilt from one person so it's taken away and no longer over you. And he says, your guilt's taken away and... Your sin is atoned for. Compensation has been made. Satisfaction has been achieved. Redemption for you is there. Expiation. Your sin. It was on you. Now it's not. It's been taken away. Your sin. The altar. And again, Isaiah had no idea what the altar was going to be in real life. He didn't know about the cross at this stage. But as he looks into the vision, as he continues with this nightmare, which suddenly has this amazing resolution at the end, he sees the coal coming towards him and he thinks atonement has been provided. God has taken the initiative and he's taken my sins away in spite of me, not because of me. 
Grace, fire, sacrifice, expiation, atonement. Such a stunning picture of what Jesus would later do and what Isaiah would later see. And in response to all of that, he says finally in verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. If we had Isaiah's experience, an encounter with the Holy God and a dramatic experience of grace like that, we might want to stay there. Say, I'll just, I'll just wait, God. If I'm allowed to stay in your presence near the throne and I'm not going to be killed because of some expiation and atonement for my sin I don't understand, I would stay there. But God says, who's going to go? And Isaiah says, I'll go, send me. Because there's a moment for all of us, isn't there, when a worship moment has to get translated into a mission moment. Because actually to stay in the glory cloud, to stay beneath the throne, if God's got a job for you to do, isn't the most worshipful thing. You want to keep coming back and getting revelation of the holiness of God. But we don't do it just to have our hearts fed with the revelation of the greatness of God. We do it because God may have things for us to do. And in this case, Isaiah, having been at the throne, in the vision, in the moment, then immediately says, I will go. If you have a job for me to do, I'll go. Send me. I will move from worship to mission, mission to worship. I will keep the two fused together. I will praise you as I go, and I will go as I praise you, because I understand that those two come together. When we encounter God, and when we receive his grace, it makes us marvelers at God and missionaries for God. It makes us people who sing and people who speak. It makes us people who praise and people who preach. It makes us people who worship and people who witness all to the glory of the sovereign God that Isaiah saw that day. I'm going to ask the band to come up and we're going to just, again, enjoy God together. I'll let Rich just lead us on from here and see if there's anything God may want to touch and speak to us about. But I just want to close in prayer. And it might be a moment just to have a moment's silence in a minute as well, just after I've prayed before we strike up and I'm sure make some noise. Let's just, let's just wait on the Lord and ask for... Heavenly Father, I, I do ask that... For everybody here, revelation would come, whether in the splendor and the dramatic holiness, glory, marveling, terror kind of way, or whether in the overwhelming sense of being atoned for and forgiven as a result of the sovereign initiative and grace of God, or both, or something else. But Lord, that you would touch our hearts with the reality of the splendor of the King and the extent of the atonement that he provided for us. And Lord, as we just maybe take even a moment in silence, I ask that you would speak to each individual here and reveal something of the character of God to us from what we've heard, that we might praise you and be catapulted forth into mission as well. Amen.